I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, can algorithms help keep kids safe? I think we have an obligation to the families who are reported to use the best data and the best science so that we can create kind of an equitable experience for them. Or is tech making a bad situation worse? If we're building tools that make families feel more isolated, then we're likely building tools that might create the very conditions we're trying to eliminate. Then how nostalgia can actually be good for you. What we're longing for is a time when we wouldn't have all these conflicts and worries, when we could actually believe someone and believe that they truly love us just because we are who we are. Plus... So we were left with no newspaper in Livingston Manor that we could call our own. There was definitely a void in our community. How libraries are filling that void. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. One day, Henry Berg was asked a strange question. Berg was a former government official. He had once served under President Abraham Lincoln. But by April of 1874, when he was asked the question, he was the head of a new organization that he had created, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And the question was asked to him by a Methodist missionary, but it was not about animals, nor was it about religion. It was about a little girl who was around age 10 named Mary Ellen McCormick. The missionary thought Mary Ellen was being mistreated by the woman who took care of her. Berg did not quite know what to say. He ran an organization designed to help animals, not children. But Berg thought that if there was enough evidence of the mistreatment, the police or the courts would take notice. The case went all the way to the New York State Supreme Court. It was a sensation. Young Mary Ellen testified, and her caretaker was put in prison. Eventually, the Methodist missionary got custody of the girl. That year, a new organization started, the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Ever since then, as child welfare organizations have spread across the country and become incorporated into local governments, and as every one of them has experienced its own tragedies, they've asked the same question. How do you protect the most vulnerable among us? This is the story of the search to answer that question and where the search may have gone wrong. It's also the story of how technology can be an amazing tool in helping us do the right thing and how that same technology could have some serious downsides. But first, before you can understand how to come up with solutions, you've got to understand the problem. And for those who work in child protective services, it often starts with something called the front door. So the front door in the child welfare system is really at the point that a call is initiated to a child welfare hotline, um, alerting the, the public child welfare agency that there are concerns about the safety or well-being of a minor child. Emily Putnam Hornstein is an associate professor at the University of Southern California and director of the Children's Data Network. It really is staggering the number of calls that our child welfare hotlines are screening on an annual basis. It's actually over 4 million referrals a year involving almost 7 million children. And so it's a system that's asked to do a lot of screening at that front door when there are concerns about the safety of a child. Four million referrals represents massive amounts of data, mountains of it, mountain ranges of it. And the question of what you do with it can make all the difference for kids. 
Every city, every town, every state in the country wants to understand the best way to handle this data, as well as lots of other data that they have about people who live in the area. But we're going to focus on just one county, Allegheny County, which encircles the city of Pittsburgh. Allegheny has been intent on finding a breakthrough which might serve as a model for the whole country. So a few years ago, they put out a call for ideas, and Emily Putnam Hornstein answered it, along with someone who hadn't spent her life working on child welfare. I'm a health economist, and I did work on trying to help clinicians identify patients who are going to come back to hospital within the next couple of years to offer those people services so that they can stop them getting readmitted. That's Rima Vaithyanathan, co-director of the Center for Social Data Analytics at Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. Putnam Hornstein and Vaithyanathan believe they could help Allegheny County sift through those mountains of data to figure out which kids might need early intervention from professionals. And remember, the reality on the ground is that these mountains include not just jail records and other sorts of municipal data, but they're also built up bit by bit every single time a child welfare hotline worker answers the phone. So they're fielding a call, and uh, obviously the amount of information that the individual calling the hotline, uh, that can vary in terms of how accurate it is and how much information there is. Um, So we're really asking our hotline screeners to make a really important decision. Am I screening this in for some type of follow-up investigation Or am I going to screen it out? And that's the end of it. And we're asking them to do that for a very large number of calls each year, um, where the stakes are quite critical. And we're asking them to do that with um, often imperfect and partial information uh, being communicated to them. Reema Vaithyanavan sat with screeners as they took some of those calls. And she says it was stressful. I had never realized just... How, what a difficult decision we're asking our call screening staff to make until I sat in on some of those calls. And quite frankly, I thought every call I was ready to get into my car and drive out. I just couldn't figure out how which call was concerning and which call wasn't. And I'm just I was blown away by the process that they went through and how well they did it. But as a layperson, I just it's staggering how to make decisions on, you know, these children. So Vaithyanathan is sitting there watching screeners do what seemed like the impossible, predict the future. They would look around in the computer records, what info had come in before about this family, what services had they used, were there major concerns. There were meetings between hotline call takers and supervisors. And then in an effort to potentially head off disaster, they had to make a critical decision. Do we file this way and call it a screen out or do we go out and subject that family to an investigation? And I think increasingly as I become more familiar with that point, I now realize that both sides of this decision are actually burdensome. Going out and subjecting a family to an investigation is also burdensome. So they're right. I was wrong. You shouldn't drive out on every call. But every screener, of course, is different. Some think some factors are more important and some think other factors are more important. And if what you're trying to do is help kids in an efficient and a consistent way, that sort of variation can be problematic. So Emily Putnam-Hornstein and Rima Vaithyanathan came up with an algorithm, which is just a recipe for a computer to follow. 
And their algorithm was tasked with using old data from Allegheny County, from hospitals, from schools, from jails, to try to figure out which kids might be headed for major involvement with child welfare. So the algorithm would look at 2011, 2012, make risk predictions, and Putnam Hornstein and Vaithya Nathan could see, okay, what actually happened to this kid by 2015 or 2016? If the child was at high risk, they got a high score. If they were at a low risk, they got a lower score. It's just by the numbers. And one thing I do, I I also want to clarify because it's something that sometimes confuses people. Um, Rima and I have been really careful to always point out that we are not necessarily predicting maltreatment. We are predicting future system involvement with the child welfare system. We know that there are children who become involved with the child welfare system who are not maltreated. Um, We know that there are maltreated children who never come to the attention of the child welfare system. What we're trying to do is equip a public system uh, with a tool that can help it make better decisions so that it can intervene earlier with high-risk families where those families are more likely to become either the chronic cases with lots and lots of referrals to the child welfare system or the cases where the system has to go so far that there's a child removed. And if there was anything that could have been done upstream of that um, through more targeted supports, we would want to do that. But as much hope and work was invested in this algorithm, once it was implemented, its creators had to sit back and worry. I was really worried that we wouldn't see the fact that kids who scored high ended up having more case openings and kids who scored low didn't. I think that my my greatest concern was simply that it wouldn't change anything at all. Final results haven't come in yet. It hasn't been long enough for that. But early signs look promising to the two scholars. Vaithya Nathan notes that algorithm scores have done a good job of predicting the level of concern of human caseworkers when they visit the kids at their homes. And Putnam Hornstein sat in on a meeting with an Allegheny call screener who said, this tool has led to richer conversations with her supervisor. And by that, she meant it used to be that I would look at the call that came in, do a scan of the data, and then I would go in and chat with my supervisor, and the supervisor would make a decision about screen in or screen out. Now what happens is I have my initial reaction to the call that's come in, and then I look at the algorithm score. And if they are aligned then it's a really nice gut check, and I've got that going into my meeting with my supervisor. If they don't align, and I think it's a really low-risk referral, and yet I've got an algorithm telling me that there might be a, a, a kind of a high likelihood of future system involvement for this family, it, one, forces me to go in and do a deeper dive into the data to better understand why it is I'm seeing this elevated risk, even though the information communicated on the call uh, does not seem in and of itself all, of the, all that severe. And two, when I go in to meet with my supervisor, we are looking more closely at the data because I've had the score to help point me in that direction. It wasn't a miracle, but the two women saw that this technological tool was helping government run more smoothly, which meant more help for kids most in need. But innovations rarely come without controversy. And this algorithm might have a side effect that could undermine its entire aim. What's that side effect? It could be doing more harm than good. The design of the tool, I believe, 
is compromised in some really significant and important ways. Virginia Eubanks is a professor of political science at the University at Albany, part of the State University of New York system. And she's the author of Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor, which focuses, in part, on the work of Allegheny County to implement this algorithm. So the major concern that parents have, the parents who feel like they're being targeted by the system have, is what's thought of as a false positive problem. And false positives just mean seeing harm uh, or potential harm where no harm actually exists. Um, And that's totally understandable from a parent's point of view, right? They feel like because the data that drives the model is only really collected on poor and working um, families, that that means their families are being over surveilled. Because of that surveillance, they are being over indicated for maltreatment. And because they're over indicated, more data is collected on them, which creates a feedback loop, which just gets worse and worse. Um, so very similar to the way people talk about the some of the problems um, with predictive policing around race, right? Because communities of color are tend to be over-policed. Then you, you find more evidence that, you know, normal bad stuff is happening in neighborhoods that are over-policed. But that becomes a feedback loop when you gather more data, which controls where police officers go, which means they end up back in those neighborhoods, which means feedback loop, right? So parents are concerned that there's something very similar going on with this tool in Allegheny County. Um, so they believe that it confuses parenting while poor with poor parenting. Remember, Eubank says, the mountains of data that Child Protective Services all over the country deal with every day, that data comes from people, from teachers, the police, doctors, neighbors, and those people may have biases they don't even recognize. It's really important to note that the community calls on black and biracial families three and a half times more often than they call on white families. Hmm. And that actually you mean somebody just gets on the phone and and calls in a complaint to a hotline and says, like, this kid doesn't seem to have food or whatever. And that happens more to black and biracial families. Absolutely. And mandated reporters report more on black and biracial families than they do on white families as well. So that is, you know, if a child comes into the emergency room with a spiral fracture, if it's a black or biracial family, they're much more likely to call CPS on them. Um, But if a white family comes in, they're much less likely to call CPS on them. So, right, right, you can imagine the sort of unexamined bias of a doctor or a nurse might lead them to see a black family and say, oh, I think that's abuse. But to see a white family and say, oh, maybe they fell off the jungle gym. The over-surveillance and suspicion of poor and minority families, Eubanks argues, means that such parents are in a constant state of worry. They don't want their kids to go to the park alone, as a wealthier family might, because they think they're more on the radar of child services. They might not want to use state-subsidized mental health care because they're worried what might be written about them in some computer file somewhere, which raises a huge and potentially counterintuitive possibility. Maybe all this data is backfiring. If we're building tools that make families feel more isolated and increase their stress, then we're likely building tools that might create the very conditions we're trying to eliminate. Eubank says if what we're really looking to do is take care of other people and help them become better families, we might be missing the boat. 
One of my great concerns about these technical tools is they allow us to wriggle out of the really deep problems that we're facing in these larger systems, right? So I talk about them in the book as um, sometimes they act as empathy overrides, right? There's a like a frontline caseworker who is faced with this incredibly inhuman, impossible decision like, um, you know, which family stays together and which one gets broken up or which unhoused person gets access to housing resources and who stays on the sidewalk. And I totally empathize with those caseworkers who might want um, a little bit of support making that decision and not feel like it's landing completely on them. But I believe that sometimes we use these tools to escape our larger responsibility for caring for each other. Emily Putnam Hornstein, the co-creator of the algorithm that's meant to help people figure out which kids are at risk, says not to put too fine a point on it, focusing on empathy doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So when a call comes into the hotline, um, I'm not sure that it's empathy that should be driving whether we make a decision to investigate or not. I think we have an obligation to the families who are reported to use the best data and the best science so that we can create a, a kind of an equitable experience for them. Um, and it's really important to keep in mind, Allegheny, the algorithm is being used only at hotline. Once a decision is made to either screen in or screen out, the worker who goes out to engage with the family has no idea what the score is. Because at that point, we are in the mode of clinical judgment, assessing the family's strengths, figuring out what supports are needed. This algorithm is just being used for a screening decision that is very challenging to make, where there's no opportunity to engage with the family directly, and it's being used to hopefully lead to more families getting the supports they need and fewer families being screened in unnecessarily. Putnam Hornstein notes that if they have information about a family, they have an obligation to use it to protect children. If they happen not to have similar info about a wealthy family, then they don't have it. But they're not going to ignore information that indicates a child needs help. Her collaborator, Rima Vaithyanathan, also disputes the notion that their algorithm may be amplifying bias. She says being on food stamps, for example, actually tends to decrease your risk score because it means a family in need is availing themselves of a service that will help their kids eat better. Though she does agree that surveillance and bias often cuts against communities of color. But if you're working on reducing that bias, she says, relying more on random humans who all have a bundle of likes and dislikes and instincts about things like race, that may not really be the way to go. Around a third of our Black and African-American families have a score of a low risk. And yet they're being disproportionately screened in. Now, this is a very simple policy that Allegheny is now moving towards, which is asking themselves, are we over-screening in those families? And now with the aid of this decision tool, it might help them understand why they're doing it and then try to remove some of that over-screening. It sounds like you're saying humans have implicit bias. And in your view, having uh, the computer look through the data instead of having a human make a judgment may remove bias from the system. Yes, it may. It may offset because we are now comparing like with like. So on one side, you've got the argument that, look, algorithms discriminate against the poor and minorities because they're dealing with certain kinds of data. So technology is only making the problem worse. 
On the other side, you've got the argument that, look, calls come into call centers and they're answered by humans. If you want their inherent biases to enter into the equation, let everything rely on the call screeners. If you want a more standardized system, let an objective tool weigh in. What both sides agree on is that algorithms are going to be used more and more across the country. Emily Putnam-Hornstein hopes that in the future they can be used earlier in the process to figure out what families might really benefit the most from services like visits from a nurse after a child is born. In programs like that, there aren't a lot of spots available, and it's hard to figure out who would benefit the most. The fact is, I think that this is an innovation that can move all of our child welfare systems in a really important and good direction when it comes to these challenging screening decisions. The mission is clear when it comes to protecting kids, but it's rarely simple. Do the right thing. If you want to understand more about the work that Putnam Hornstein and Vaithyanathan do on risk modeling and algorithms, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org. There, we will also have more from Virginia Eubanks, who has written extensively not just about Allegheny County, but about programs in Los Angeles and Indiana. In general, do you think America's best days are ahead of us or behind us? That was a question asked in 2015 for something called the American Values Survey. And answers varied by political party, but a lot of Americans were worried that the best was not yet to come. Nearly 60 percent of Republicans thought our best days were behind us. And nearly 40 percent of Democrats agreed, which might help explain the appeal of a slogan like Make America Great Again, whose champion had only become a presidential contender a few months before that survey question was asked. But the notion of how great things once were, it's not unique to now. It's a notion that entranced Don Draper from the show Mad Men as he talked about nostalgia while showing off a carousel of slides containing precious moments in his own life. Let's just travel the way a child travels. Around and around, and back home again. To a place where we know we are loved. And nostalgia is a notion that singer Phil Oak celebrated in the 1962 song, Time Was. Time was when a man could live alone. A man could build a home, have a family of his own. The peaceful years would flow, he could watch his children grow. But it was a long time ago. Why does nostalgia exist? Why did so many people in both 2015 and 1962 and, I suspect, 1815 and 1762, why did they have the nagging sense that things used to be better in a time that they had hazy memories of? Christine Bacho researches nostalgia, and she says, we happen to be living in a time when it's particularly high. She's a psychology professor at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York. Christine, welcome. Thank you. So let's first off start with kind of um, a definition here. What does nostalgia mean to you? What does it mean to be nostalgic? That is an excellent question because the meaning of the word changed over time. It was coined 
1688 by a medical physician. And in Huffer, that was his name, in his definition, it's really homesickness, a severe state of homesickness that actually could be fatal in its most horrible level or degree. To me, I have chosen to research personal nostalgia. And personal nostalgia is that bittersweet feeling that you have when you're yearning for, missing, or longing for something from your past. Mm -hmm. There are other kinds of nostalgia as well. And so it's an important question to get down to the definitions. So as you kind of allude to there, um, do you want to Talk about the difference between like personal nostalgia and historical nostalgia, though I assume there's kind of a lot of bleed between the two in some ways. That is a most important question. Uh, traditionally, most theorists look at historical nostalgia as longing for a time, a period in history. And usually that period in history can even predate your own birth. Okay. So if someone were to say, oh, I'm nostalgic for the Victorian era, and uh, what does that really mean to be nostalgic for something that you never lived through? That is a separate kind of emotional experience. I collected data on both historical and personal. Hmm. The difference, though, is not as simple as how many years ago or even whether it was before your own birth or after your birth. It can come down. In my most recent uh, studies, it appears that the distinction comes down to a psychological feeling of connectedness. So if you're missing something that you feel somehow personally relevant or meaningful to you, then that would come under the umbrella of personal nostalgia. Okay. I'll give you a simple example. If you were being told stories by your grandparents and you started to become nostalgic for the childhood they described to you, mm -hmm. well, clearly you weren't alive then. Right. So that would be technically historical nostalgia. But because it's in a personal relationship with your own grandparents, I might consider that to be an example of personal. Hmm. You've probably asked yourself this many times, but I wonder why nostalgia exists. Because I could see an argument that nostalgia you know, has you always looking in the rearview mirror and not looking at what's ahead in some ways. Maybe you're not thinking about progress or pushing your own life forward because you're thinking about what's already happened. Why do we get nostalgic? Nostalgia does date back thousands of years. So presumably, it's a part of the universal human experience that probably always existed and therefore probably always will. If it always existed, then it must serve certain needs that humans have. And some of the needs that it appears to serve uh, in terms of my research and the research of others who've uh, also jumped into this uh, theoretical arena have to do with two really important aspects of being a healthy person. One is to be connected, surprisingly, to yourself meaning we change so much over one lifespan. So if you look back at photos in the family uh, album of yourself as a baby or a toddler, right. it's almost impossible to relate to that. And so one of the most important philosophical questions is, how do we even know that we are the same person we were 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever? And keeping track of what we call identity 
a sense of who you are, a self, that is very critical to psychological well-being. Nostalgia motivates reverie or reminiscence. And when you reminisce, what you're doing is you're bringing the past forward. It's not that you're returning to the past. A lot mm-hmm. of times people misunderstand it and they think you want to regress, you want to go back. Uh, quite the contrary. You want to bring the past forward so you mm-hmm. can contemplate it within today's context. And that way you keep the unity of yourself together. Mm-hmm. The other really important uh, function is to connect us to other people. So mm-hmm. you are, for example, your mother's daughter or your brother's sister, that kind of thing. And so in a way, keeping connected to other people is also important to our sense of psychological integrity and authenticity. And uh, nostalgia plays a very important role in keeping people connected to other people. If you look at the general population, um, and, and maybe focusing on, let's say, older adults, When people look back and they're nostalgic for a time in their lives, does that time tend to be a similar time? Like people are nostalgic for their 20s. People are nostalgic for their teens. People are nostalgic for when they were little kids. Is there any kind of like broad conclusions you can draw about the time that most sort of made an impression on people? It is true that nostalgia peaks during two different time periods in our lifetime. One of them is late adolescence into early adulthood. When I first uncovered that, it was surprising, not just to me, but to other theorists, because most people associate nostalgia with uh, old age. That is the other peak, but actually of the two, most researchers have found that late adolescence, early adulthood is a higher level than even aging. So well, let me the, just make sure. It's So it's not like when you're old, you think about being in late adolescence. It's when you're in late adolescence, at that moment, you are nostalgic for an earlier time. That's right. So okay. it's a little bit of a sliding scale because okay. if you're 20, you're probably feeling nostalgic for middle school or toddlerhood or something like that. But if you're 80, you're probably nostalgic for, and now to address your question directly, it's true that it depends upon what you're nostalgic for. The number one area that people tend to be most nostalgic for are their relationships, because nostalgia is fundamentally a social emotion. So if you're 80 or if you're 50, you're going to be nostalgic for romantic relationships that you had, family relationships, maybe relationships with people who were very meaningful in your life, a coach, a trainer, mm-hmm. a favorite teacher. And so if you, it, it's not the number of years. It's the content. It's what you're nostalgic for. Music, for example, is something that people, when they're in their senior years, are likely to be somewhat nostalgic for, and the music they're nostalgic for is of the time period when they became adults. Hmm. I wonder if today's technology at all like amplifies nostalgia, because when I think about Facebook, it's very good at reminding you of times in your past. So high school photos and grade school photos, they, they all pop up. Um, it used to be, of course, that if you wanted to look at the past, you had to lug out the carousel photos like Don Draper did, or you had to go to your photo album. 
But I just wonder how being exposed to the past all the time uh, affects nostalgia. I think it does have an impact, and I think most of the impact is a beneficial one. With one uh, caveat, the warning I have for it is this. Very often when someone is nostalgic, he or she is seeking out the triggers. For example, if you went into your digital photos and you started looking for, gee, I want to find a photo of Mm -hmm. so-and-so or my trip to... Mm -hmm. You're in charge. You're in control. Having someone else choose the triggers and feed them to you can be a mixed bag because if they choose well, it'll be just a nice little nostalgic experience. But if they choose badly, for instance, uh, since I teach college students, I have spontaneously (laughs) been given uh, many, 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 many examples for my students of when things went wrong. Mm. And for example, if a relationship ended very badly and someone in social media doesn't know that, and then they send reminders and photos from an old trip, not realizing that that's actually going to trigger a painful emotional reaction rather than a bittersweet kind of pleasant nostalgic one. Uh, Some people Uh, in college told me that they actually uh, considered giving up Facebook for that reason. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Christine Bacho, a psychology professor at Lemoyne College who has researched the causes and the effects of nostalgia. Um, I talked earlier about the slogan, Make America Great Again, which has this big component of nostalgia in it. When that slogan was first unveiled, when when President Trump first started running just for the Republican nomination, did you immediately notice that as like, wait, that's what I study. This is nostalgia. I definitely noticed that. And what I thought was really fascinating to me as a psychologist is uh, during that campaign, Bernie Sanders, who couldn't be further away politically from Donald Trump, right, Uh, ran an ad that was one of the most popular video ads ever in which the background music was one of the oldies, okay, from a long time ago. It was Simon and Garfunkel, right? It was. And so we have two candidates, both mm, not very young people, and uh, followers, people who uh, followed their political ideologies, et cetera, or liked the candidate, who were very, very different politically, and yet you saw nostalgia forming an important component in both. So now the question becomes, what are we really talking about? Are we talking about historical or personal? Well, you would have to do almost... uh, a literary analysis of the rhetoric involved. But when you listen or go and reread speeches uh, given on the campaign trail, many of the things that Trump used as examples were things that probably came from his growing up time. Hmm. So in a way, you could argue that he was experiencing or being personally nostalgic, whereas his audience, uh, let's say if you're a a 35-year-old guy who likes Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. you didn't live during those times. So for Mm -hmm. that person, it might be historical nostalgia. Isn't that interesting? So there could be two different kinds of nostalgia that kind of come together and blend in a funny kind of way. 
And it doesn't mean just because you're 35 that you don't long for it, even if you didn't experience it firsthand. Like the, the descriptions sound good enough. Yes. And here's the interesting part about nostalgia. There are levels. And so on one level, people can be nostalgic for specific objects, in fact, very specific. For example, someone who is very nostalgic for a particular item of clothing, a dress that they wore, mm-hmm. or an older person who remembers the gown they wore to their uh, senior prom. But those things tend to not be the most important parts of nostalgia. The more important parts are what I call the more conceptual. So things like longing for a time when you could really depend on someone 100%, that you wouldn't have to question that they're going to betray you, abandon you, reject you. Someone who would love you just for who you are. Mm-hmm. So in a way, what we're longing for is a, a time when we wouldn't have all these conflicts and worries and fears, when we could actually believe someone and believe that they truly love us, not because of how much we earn or how many academic titles we have, but just because we are who we are. And you never really have that feeling again the rest of your life. So in a way, saying make America great again uh, could be interpreted on one very specific level as the economy and those sorts of things. But actually, when you get down to the nostalgia, emotional part of it, it's more about, gee, I, wouldn't it be nice if we could live the way Phil Oakes sang about? Right. Uh, by the way, have there been in politics, um, do you feel like this is a, a, a common thing, not just in the most recent 2016 campaign, but um, going back, do you see it as a commonplace thing that politicians play on our sense of yesteryear was better than now? I think it depends upon the historical uh, setting or context. I'll give you a simple example of uh, John F. Kennedy who, because of the time period, the past would have included all those John Wayne movies about World War II and a lot of the horrors of war. So when President Kennedy, was, who was one of the most popular candidates and presidents of all time, uh, his rhetoric was just colored with optimism and future-oriented, you know, we're going to put a man on the moon and bring him back right. safely again giving people goals to look forward to rather than the past. And in a way, you could argue that uh, nostalgia is a two-edged sword. I see it as I wish we knew how to harness its healing and wonderful powers and not allow it to become the trap that can trap us in the maladaptive or the unhealthy. Because at its best, nostalgia is future-oriented, which surprises everyone. But all the correlational data I've collected and others have collected show that nostalgia correlates with optimism, not pessimism and not reactionary ideology. Really? It's always about going forward. And that surprises people because you would say, well, why would that be? And I think the answer to that comes down to this. Once you really understand what nostalgia is doing, it's fortifying you. You're trying to hold on to your integrity, your authenticity, your connections to the things that are going to be the groundwork, the foundation, and that gives you the strength and courage and sometimes even the methodologies for moving forward. You, you can take with you all that you've learned in your whole life and move forward with it. 
Christine Vacho is a psychology professor at Lemoyne College in New York. She researches nostalgia. Christine, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike, they've all come to look for America. Bacho has actually created a test called the Nostalgia Inventory to measure how nostalgic you are. She says your score often depends on where you're at in life. Imagine a college student who graduates and their first job is 3,000 miles away from home. At that time, they might score very high because they're missing their family and their home and everything. You can measure your own nostalgia by heading to our website, innovationhub.org. When I was a kid, my hometown paper had a name that I didn't really realize was odd. At least not until I got older and it came up in conversation and people started to laugh. It was called the Mosquito because... We were a town plagued by mosquitoes. And when I was growing up, that made total sense to me. I never once thought it was funny. Today, the mosquito is still kicking. The newspaper, that is, though I'm sure the actual mosquitoes are doing nicely, too. But just in the last 15 years or so, close to 2,000 newspapers across the country have either merged or they've just entirely disappeared, which for a community can mean no more wedding announcements, no more junior high honor roll lists, no more passionate op-eds about whether to build houses on a new tract of land. And there's another downside, too. No more journalists, except for folks that you've never met in places like D.C. and New York. But change and inventive thinking is on the way, from the most unlikely of places. Innovation Hub's Mark Filipino has the story. Last year, Dictionary.com announced that it would be adding an interesting word to its collection. Actually, it was two words, which had worked their way into everyday conversation. Fake news. A huge part of the country doesn't trust the media the way it used to. And we're a country where local news sources are constantly closing up shop. So who steps in to fill the void and help us trust the media again? Well, there's one institution, one that doesn't always get the most attention, that's gearing up for the challenge. I'm going to put this gold star next to three programs that I think would be the best initiatives to foster media literacy. That's Simone Grona Nieto, who traveled all the way from a library in Colorado to be at a symposium of 80 librarians and journalists at Simmons College in Boston. They've gathered to answer the question, how can libraries help the public as the news industry changes? And they might be the best ones to take on this task of restoring our historically low faith in the media. Libraries have high public trust. That's Laura Saunders. She's an associate professor of library and information science at Simmons College. But one issue that we've been discussing is what is that trust really in? In other words, do people really understand what their library does? Or are they thinking just around the, I can go there and get a book and you know, the people there are pretty nice? Saunders points out that libraries have spent decades helping people find trustworthy sources. But navigating the news in the age of the internet is difficult. So increasingly, libraries are collaborating with journalists to help people figure out what's real and what isn't. One of these libraries is Skokie Public Library, just north of Chicago. Every time I turn on the news, I hear the words Trump. And I can't think that everything our president says is always newsworthy. Jim Barnard sits in a meeting room with about 20 other people. They're gathered for a news literacy workshop. 
I feel at times overwhelmed by the volume and of news and the pace of news. Most people are either airing their grievances with the Trump administration, wondering how they can protect themselves from fake news, or, like Jim, are simply baffled by media outlets that spend every waking moment covering Trump. The workshop is run by Bettina Chang, the editorial director of a civic journalism lab called City Bureau. Skokie is one of five libraries across the country that got grants from the American Library Association and Stony Brook University to put on news literacy programs like this one. Chang explains how reporters choose stories, how the public can engage with local journalists, and how we can stay one step ahead of fake news. The most common hoax is that a celebrity has died. You know, if you hear that like Denzel Washington has died and there's only one news source reporting it, do you, I mean, it's hard to believe, right? Like that a major celebrity would die and that only one news organization is reporting it. Chang says news consumers should be cautious of outlets that don't question government sources too. She singles out the Chicago Police Department, an agency she says has a tendency to stretch the truth. It's at this point that Ron Ziven, one of the workshop attendees, walks out of the room. When the workshop finishes up, he comes back to pick up his wife. But he says he left because, as a Trump supporter himself, he felt pretty outnumbered. I don't love Trump. He's crass. But all his issues are right. But, you know, you got these people who just are totally against anything. And he was pretty uncomfortable with the comments Chang made about the police. Yeah, that's why I left. What am I listening to here? Everything in the police are propaganda. I happen to know somebody who's involved with the police department who does that. And it's all what she said is not true. That's not true. They don't try to slant it, as far as I know. I mean, maybe she knows more. I, I don't know. Laura Saunders from Simmons College says that it's important that when libraries have these conversations, they bring in a variety of voices so everyone feels comfortable. If we're going to re-envision libraries as community centers, then we're going to have to re-envision the role of the librarian, and we're going to have to think about educating librarians to actually be discourse facilitators. Increasingly, libraries are able to host conversations that can be had few other places in town. And some libraries are doing even more than just talking about the news. They're also reporting it. So this whole article needs to be reworked by somebody. Great. I was so glad to see O.C. got his article in. Yeah, O.C. got his article in. He did the layout. In the town of Livingston Manor in New York's Catskill Mountains, a few students and adult volunteers are crowded around a school art room table laying out an upcoming edition of Manor, Inc., a monthly newspaper that serves the small community. Livingston Manor's main newspaper shut down a few years ago, and Carolyn Bivens, Manor, Inc.'s graphics mentor, says some of the other newspapers in their county don't pay much attention to the town. So we were left with no newspaper in Livingston Manor uh, that we could call our own. And um, it was a void. There was definitely a void in our community. So a few parents wondered, what if we got students to do a newspaper? But it couldn't be a school newspaper. The school didn't have the time or the resources to pull that off. That's where the town library comes in. The library, with the help of a nonprofit focused on youth community journalism, built a newspaper in 2012. And Manor Inc. was born. You know, it was really small probably not as professional when we started, and it's really grown. I mean, our following has grown. You know, we get people who have heard about the paper, and they're like, oh, yeah, I've seen a copy of that. That's the paper's editor-in-chief, Iris Fenn Gillingham. She started at Manor, Inc. when she was just 13 years old, and she, 
like the rest of the staff, was trained by local journalists, mentors, and library board members. Now she's got about a dozen student reporters working under her on stories about everything from the town's annual trout parade to a local bear tagging program. But they also cover bigger stories, like community development plans. So even if they're not breaking the next Watergate scandal, they're still providing news in a news-starved community. Manor Inc. produces a thousand paper copies of the 12-page paper every month and gets its funding through a variety of sources. Donations, local advertisers, grants. And not only is the paper keeping the community informed, it's teaching students like 8th grader and Manor Inc. reporter O.C. Helper how to be better journalists. I feel like fake news has led me to want to reach out sources more, like original sources or links or anything that can prove that what people are saying is true. And the idea of having a library-run newspaper like Manor Inc. isn't just happening in small towns. It's bubbling up in big city academic symposiums. So many amazing things Back at Simmons College, the groups are presenting their workshop ideas. One of the more popular ideas belongs to a group that wants libraries across the country to have newsmaker spaces, where librarians can teach patrons how to produce news. Sound familiar? Simmons's Laura Saunders says that the library's adoption of news literacy and news creation programs are trying to shift the image of the library from a place where you absorb information to a place where you also assess that information. The more that we show them the process and help them to understand how we arrived at the answer, I think the more that they are going to be able to feel like they can trust us. It's a new role for an American institution. For Innovation Hub, I'm Mark Filipino. If you want to know more about Livingston Manor's library-run newspaper, fueled by a bunch of scrappy student reporters, we've got a link to it at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Chloe Lemelhay and Simone Migliori. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.